With these latter campaigns, it's much more insidious, focused on one person, very much more on the micro level of we need terabytes of data or however much data they need, whether that's video, whether that's audio, whether that's photos of a person in order to generate these very customized deep fakes hitting one target or hitting very few targets. If this isn't hundreds of fake profiles being used for a disinformation campaign, this is $2,000 to hit one person named XYZ and making their lives miserable. And that's what we're seeing in the underground a lot, where it's a lot more targeted, a lot more surgical in its incision and in its end disruption. Welcome to another episode of Mandiant's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. I am joined today, returning guest, Michelle Cantos, a senior analyst on our strategic analysis team. Hello. Michelle, great to have you here again. Great to be back. Our topic of discussion for today is going to be on artificial intelligence. For folks listening to this, they hear a security vendor saying AI, and they think, oh no, it's going to be a bunch of product placement or discussions of new capabilities. But that's actually not what we're here to talk about today. We're going to talk about AI from the standpoint of the adversary and how we're seeing AI being utilized and leveraged in various cases by threat actors in their operations. So I think this will be interesting. And Mm -hmm. for folks that uh, Michelle was on a a previous podcast we did, I think it was on the contractors one, correct? Yeah. Real contractors with John Doyle and James Sadowski. Which was a great episode. I definitely recommend folks go check that out. But one of the other things I will will give a quick shout out to Michelle for, and and the reason why you are the the guest that we're having on for this episode is... (laughs) Within Mandiant Intelligence, there are always people who, when we get a question that comes in from a customer on like a particular niche area, there's a few people that always get, you know, they're kind of like the point person for those sorts of questions. And so Michelle is the person that we always go to anytime we get a question around artificial intelligence or machine <laughs> learning, not to pigeonhole you because I know you you work on obviously a lot of other things as well, but uh, I think this will be... I have people skills. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things that you, you, you do here, but this one, for the purpose of this discussion, the skill that we're going to be leveraging is, you know, you're, you're studying of this trend as we're seeing more of AI tools being utilized by threat actors. Mm-hmm. And I think the place that it makes the most sense to start, obviously, is just defining for our purposes here. What do we mean when we say AI, artificial intelligence? That term gets used around a lot, but how would you characterize it for what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I think a lot of people see the word AI and they automatically jump to T1000, Skynet. If I could, if I had a nickel for every time, the conversation has always started off with questions about Skynet. I mean, I wouldn't have to work anymore. But for the purposes of our discussion, AI is basically a subfield of computer science, and it deals with a program or a machine's ability to accomplish tasks that normally would require human levels of intelligence. And for that, I mean perception, reasoning, abstraction, and learning. So how does that apply to the cyber threat landscape? Well, one of the things we've seen sort of I don't want to say daily basis, but one of the things that we've seen or how we've seen AI leveraged a lot, especially in recent years, as the technology has become more widely available, it's become cheaper in 2017. A lot of this stuff was, you know, very 
conceptual minimum viable product. And now there's a lot that's up for sale or just for free that's out there in the world and out there in the underground. But what we've seen a lot is for information operations where it's the use of deep fakes and along that line of, you know, using deep fake of pictures to make profiles, to lend credence to a certain threat actor's information operation or to promote a certain narrative. And that's kind of I've seen that or and our information operations team has observed a lot of that in the past few years. And it's definitely a big use. Um, one of the most stark examples of how AI is being used in the cyber threat landscape that we had kind of I don't want to say we called it in 2018, but we have a few reports regarding manipulated media and how it would be used in elections that we have made uh, in previous FIP reports kind of highlighting ways that AI could be used uh, amongst offensive operators. So let's start there, actually, because I think, again, this is yeah. the area where I'm probably most familiar with how we've seen threat actors leverage AI. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked about a little bit in a recent podcast we did with some of the IO folks on activity they were seeing around the, the conflict in Ukraine and mm-hmm. Russian and Belarusian operations that mm-hmm. have used that, as you mentioned. So can you describe a little bit for, uh, I think actually I used the term GAN, generated images before, but I never defined it. I don't yeah. think we ever got into that. So what what are, when we talk about mm-hmm. utilization for you know profile pictures, and GAN images, what is that exactly? And how are threat actors using that? Right, so GAN stands for Generative Adversarial Networks. And I like to think of it as a spy versus spy, but (laughs) what it is, it's basically you have two parts to it, two parts of the system. So you have a generator, which is making fake outputs, and you have a discriminator, which is trying to decide whether the output that the generator has made is fake or real based on training data that's trained off of. The analogy I love that I read a few years ago by a researcher, I think it was on a Medium post, was comparing it to this episode of SpongeBob where SpongeBob is trying to get into this tough guy bar, but the bouncer won't let him in because he's not a tough guy. And then so SpongeBob tries to become all these different iterations of what he thinks a tough guy is in order to get past this bouncer to get into the bar and the the bouncer very much knows that SpongeBob is not tough or like that this isn't what the ideal version of a tough guy is. And I thought, yeah, that is nailed it on the head. SpongeBob called it. So yeah. and these are images that are essentially artificially generated. So if you wanted yeah. to So create- it could be images, it could be audio, it could be video, any sort of this like a media or multimedia output can be trained on GANs. And what we usually see is a lot of profile pictures, so a lot of fake images that are generated by threat actors instead of pulling some random person who might be a legitimate person and pulling their picture for a fake profile, you make, you know, to scale a lot of fake profile pictures and you could make, you know, hundreds upon thousands of fake accounts to help your narrative and to help your disinformation campaign. It's been pretty tough. Well, actually, I shouldn't say it's been pretty tough. It's actually pretty easy to see uh, for certain pictures um, that are made through GANs. And I say that because a lot of the images that are produced, they're not, they're not the best quality. Some of them, there's a, we have a, Median has a great chart where there's a lot of photos generated by GANs and one of them I think has, there is an image of a woman who has a giant hole in her neck and then there's another image where the person next to the main profile picture that they have no eyes or they're missing half of an ear. So GANs is not necessarily perfect. It's, it's okay-ish as long as you're not looking too hard. But um, on our side, what we have is a tool called Gander, 
And what that helps us do is it helps researchers identify the use of these images at scale. And it does so by uh, we have a custom deep learning architecture and it's trained on computer vision tasks of distinguishing real headshots from images generated via via GANs. So on our side, we're trying to fight fire with fire to uh, identify if they're going to make them at scale, we'll identify them at scale. So because these are images that are generated that are procedurally generated, sometimes they can result in errors, as you noted, where parts of the image is a bit wonky. But I've seen, you know, many of the examples that we've looked at Mm -hmm. and some of those you really have to look very carefully at it to tell that it's not, you know, a real Mm -hmm. individual. And one of the benefits, obviously, of using Mm -hmm. that as opposed to stealing someone's image, an actual person's image, you know, which we've seen threat actors do in the past. if They're making an account Mm on a social media platform is if you reverse image search that and you find the actual account, you know, that obviously is one technique that has been around for a while to determine if this is a you know, fictitious profile. <laughs> uh, and so if you're making a completely new fresh image from scratch, and if it is realistic and lifelike enough, it can make it more difficult to assess the authenticity of that, that profile that could be used for social engineering or a wide range of other, you know, IO related threat activity. Yeah, it's definitely what I found is you don't even often more often than not you don't even need to leverage a lot of these sophisticated machine learning based sort of techniques in order to leverage phishing or extortion or any sort of thing it's like there's a lot of low hanging fruit that can just be tricked with photoshop that can just be tricked that you don't even use need to use deep learning in order to make a very convincing deep fake if you just slow down a video speed up a video there's a lot that can be done with just garden variety manipulated multimedia that doesn't even need to leverage a lot of sophisticated AI in order to be convincing. It's kind of terrifying. You don't need to use these. The the options for, you know, the options for garden variety, easy access manipulation is still enough to fool a lot of people on the internet, which is kind of terrifying. I think that's an interesting point too. And you, you, you mentioned, you know, these aren't necessarily incredibly hard to access technologies or tools to create these sorts Mm. of images. I think to one of the points that was made on the podcast we did around the IO activity in Ukraine is starting to see more examples where more of what people traditionally think of as deep fakes, where it's actual, you know, video and not mm, just a still image video. that we're yeah, seeing more of yeah. that. But even within mm-hmm. those capabilities, you know, a lot of the technologies that you could utilize for, for creating those images still or otherwise are available out in the open source or people are able to mm-hmm. develop that capability off of open source projects. So we're not talking mm-hmm. about, you know, very, very sophisticated tooling that is only accessible to a small number of, you know, nation state groups. This is something that increasingly you can find or leverage at very little cost, it seems. Right. This isn't something that's in the basement of DARPA that you have to dig out and do an Ocean's Eleven style heist in order to get. This is stuff that you Google and you can find like for free. And, <laughs> so and- it's it's really interesting to see sort of the democratization of this technology and how it's how it's spread just in the last few years from going from something that was very much in the hallowed halls of these Ivy League institutions or these research institutions where it was these this brand new groundbreaking research and just, you know, five years later, six years later, it's something that, oh yeah, that'll cost you thirty bucks. To see it in that span of a cycle has been pretty eye opening. I think the other aspect of it that is interesting is, you know, you mentioned being able to do this at scale. And so if you're thinking about a network of accounts for the purposes of disinformation, 
for the purposes of mm-hmm. IO to be able to propagate and generate those accounts and utilize those those technologies to create profile pictures at scale. It might be good enough for the purposes, right? It might be good enough. It doesn't necessarily right. need to yeah. stand up against more intensive scrutiny. If you're just trying to look for someone that agrees with your point and inflates it, you know, you're not really going to sit there for five or 10 minutes to discern whether or not, you know, they're both earrings on that person's ears or why is their eye slightly asymmetrical? You know, you're, it's, uh, for some of these social media platforms are looking for someone who agrees with them and can push them towards, you know, how many more degrees of radicalizing them or whatever point they're trying to get across convincing people who might otherwise not be convinced that, okay, well, there are enough people online who, seem to have this point. So it must be true. It's not on the internet. So it's definitely real. <laughs> so people are, are more familiar, I would say, increasingly of that capability with with IO. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've written about various campaigns and, and networks mm-hmm. um, that have leveraged that. Um, maybe we can pivot a little bit and talk about what we're also seeing in the underground, maybe on the extortive side, where going beyond disinformation <laughs> and that particular use case, how we're seeing AI be discussed for potential leverage in some of those other types of operations with maybe a different type of motivation. Right. So the IO leveraging sort of general general adversarial networks as part of their operations has been around for a few years, but I guess starting since early 2020, maybe around 2019-ish, what we're starting to see is a lot of financially motivated actors in underground forums using deepfake technology for their own more targeted operations. And what we're what we've seen since then is a lot of threat actors either offering to teach deepfake courses or offering deepfake services. In a way it's kind of a little more insidious of a knife twist where some of these are some of these threat actors are starting to promote demoralization campaigns where they'll make a deep fake for uh, about a target and then offer 24 hour long spamming services to hit that target across multiple social media platforms to make sure that target sees this video and is truly psychologically traumatized by it. Um, And to add insult to injury, they might also potentially try and disable the victim's social media profiles. That way they can't get to, you know, the platform to report or to request to take down a video. It's, It's heading into some new emotionally traumatic territory that can potentially be very dangerous because this stuff can be used for very customized extortion campaigns, fraud campaigns, anything to get money out of these people. And I think that's kind of where some parts of the underground are starting to realize, well, this date, this technology is also available to us. Now that it's finally available, how can we use it as sort of a force, mul- force multiplier or as sort of extortion plus, phishing plus, all, all of these things plus to, to help enhance their campaigns. So it's it's been really interesting to see how cyber criminals have started to use artificial intelligence, whether it's for extortion or things like bypassing multi-factor authentication. I think there was, a, I believe it was March 2021, where Chinese tax scammers used a mobile phone application, one of those apps that takes still photos and then turns them into a video for like about five seconds or something like that. And that's all they needed to put in front of a facial recognition system to, you know, bypass some security protocols put in place by a tax administrative building. And once they were inside, they it was their initial access point. Once they were inside, they tried to steal about 
uh, $76 million from uh, the Chinese government through false invoices and shell companies. But bypassing MFA using, you know, just an easy phone app that's accessible to everyone, that was their in. Uh, so we're starting to see it used for just more conventional campaigns, not even ones that are, you know, leveraging leveraging cyber threat activity. It's kind of just garden variety. Robbers are starting to use these people who wouldn't necessarily use cyber threat activity as part of their campaigns. You know, a phone app is easy. Boom, you're done. You're in. We've also seen a lot of artificial intelligence tech leverage for vishing or impersonating the voice of someone leveraging. You only need like a small voice sample and then you can use that. Plus, any number of apps that are on the market in order to emulate a certain person's voice. And you can use that to emulate, for instance, the CEO of a company's voice. And then you take that and it becomes a social engineering call to just someone in the company who has never heard the CEO before and is all of a sudden demanding thousands upon thousands in iTunes gift cards or something like that. So vishing has also been on the table for a while that we've seen threat actors use, you know, probably since about fall of 2019, but probably earlier. And for folks who aren't familiar with vishing, what what is vishing? So vishing is where you essentially take the, the voice, you take a voice snippet of someone, whether it's a bigwig such as Kevin Mandia or whoever, and you take the voice of someone and then you utilize some sort of app that allows it to clone the voice based off of that small sample of data. So then you can use that voice to then impersonate other people as part of social engineering campaigns. So a lot of threat actors will use this to clone the voice of the C-suite, whether it's taking samples of their voice from newsreels or interviews that they've done, and then using that to emulate, to clone their voice and use it for their own operations. And you were talking in earlier, like the, the first part of this about how threat actors are using or advertising services in the underground that are more extortive. Mm-hmm. Um, is that primarily, are they positioning that as a service to target individuals and create some of those similar deep fake videos and, and, you know, try to make embarrassing videos and then use that as extortion? Or how is that mm-hmm. extortion actually working with artificial intelligence being a tool? I, I see it. With these latter campaigns, it's much more insidious, focused on one person, very much more on the micro level of we need terabytes of data or however much data they need, whether that's video, whether that's audio, whether that's photos of a person in order to generate these very customized deep fakes hitting one target or hitting very few targets. If this isn't hundreds of fake profiles being used for a disinformation campaign, this is $2,000 to hit one person named XYZ and making their lives miserable. And that's what we're seeing in the underground a lot, where it's a lot more targeted, a lot more surgical in its incision and in its end disruption. So this is potentially an area where, as we've moved into you know discussing beyond just ransomware, this problem of multifaceted extortion, right? Where threat actors are, mm-hmm. you know, for some time now, it's not really new, but for some time we've been seeing threat actors <laughs> steal data, as you know, maybe kind of a side mission to a ransomware operation, or sometimes even just completely independent of deploying encryptors, carrying extortion by data theft, and then threatening to, to leak mm-hmm. that on a name and shame site. Threat actors are obviously getting more creative as to how they extort the potential victims. So is this something that you see potentially mm-hmm. expanding this, this particular capability, this focus as another way to extort not just individuals, but corporate entities? Definitely. I think as the 
as the technology becomes more widely available and as people, you know, continue to offer not only their services, but offer courses on how to for other people to use, this is only going to proliferate and it's going to be, you know, hybrid data theft, ransomware extortion plus AI for a lot of these cases is a force multiplier of making, adding that layer of complication to pre-existing campaigns in order to make the victim's lives either <laughs> in order to disrupt the victim's lives further or in order to either make new initial access points for supporting subsequent uh, parts of the campaign. It's going to augment it in a way that I think moving forward, it's going to be a lot more, probably like a f more frequent and more effective campaigns, I think, in the future. So we talked about the I.O. problem right now. We've seen AI be leveraged there. We've talked about financially motivated activity, what you've been seeing in the mm -hmm. underground. Let's move a little bit to the nation state intrusion side and cyber espionage side. That's obviously maybe a little bit harder to determine in the course of an operation <laughs> how AI might, AI might be being leveraged. Certainly, it seems like one area you can imagine how that might be useful is on the back end of an operation where we've seen very significant data sets being stolen, large amounts of data loss, data theft, and then potentially using some AI capability on the back end to process that and exploit that information that has been stolen. Is, is that maybe where we should expect to see AI play its way into cyber espionage or how might we see AI emerge, as you mentioned, as a force multiplier to these other areas? Where might AI be a force multiplier to cyber espionage operations? Well, I think cyber espionage has the leg up because you're tied to a government that is might be developing AI capabilities, you know, not related to uh, to offensive campaigns, but they're just, you know, building it up for the sake of building it up, whether it's Putin who said, you know, who who controls AI controls the world or some iteration of that, or you have the fact that Chinese tech companies need to share technology and information with military intelligence and security services. And that's just kind of the gentleman's agreement they have. A lot of these places, they're developing this technology and then finding places where they can sort of insert it, especially I think on the back end. So what we anticipate is going to happen is a lot of machine learning will be used to support pre-existing SB campaigns. So for instance, China has a lot of personally identifiable information or PII and PHI that it, you know, troves and troves of data and it would take any analyst years, decades, centuries to go through all that, make connections, understand who goes to what and who would be the best target for, you know, say recruitment opportunities. But with something like machine learning that can more quickly find patterns and relationships, you can more easily find who's connected to whom for reconnaissance or, you know, for easier recruitment. It's definitely, I think, something we're going to see on the back end a lot more of just Chinese intelligence services applying machine learning and data science to allow their espionage actors to collect this information and analyze this information with greater speed and accuracy moving forward. It's probably something similar for Russia, although for Russia, what I'm seeing of is a lot of artificial intelligence leverage for the military hardware side. Um, I think that was it Samuel Bendet over, I think he's at CNA, has done some really great coverage on all of the sort of Russia 
leveraging AI for a lot of their applied sort of military technology. But that's not to say that they're not leveraging it on the back end in the same way that China might with all of the stolen PAI that they have. So you can imagine something like the OPM breach from years ago, yes. where you have this yep. massive trove of data, and then even other sort of similar breaches or, or large heists of data going forward. I guess mm-hmm. the speed at which you can exploit that and extract, you know, useful data, useful intelligence for follow on targeting. That's one of the areas mm-hmm. of a force multiplier here for cyber espionage or even other types of espionage and intelligence activities is that you can exploit right. those data sets a lot faster and that mm-hmm. leads to, to, you know, more follow on activity potentially. Or even just uh, financial data. You can understand if you overlay financial data with OPM data, you can figure out who owes money to who, who's in lots of debt and who has a security clearance. Boom. There's there's who you target, or it's easier if you overlay all of these all these overlapping stolen databases. Whether it's Ashley Madison, whether it's a whole trove of different PII, you can use that to better find weaknesses in a lot of people, and then use that for your recruitment later on, or use that however you might for extortion, for fraud, for insider you know, insider threats, that sort of thing. It's definitely easier to find weaknesses when you have something on the back end that can identify those weaknesses across all of these databases for you. So you have areas where we're already seeing AI play a role. We're seeing growing interest in certain areas. I think the cybercrime space uh, that you discussed will be very interesting to watch because I think a lot of times we see very rapid trialing of new TTPs, new ways mm-hmm. to exploit whether it's access to a victim environment or network, right? We saw that with crypto miners when that started becoming big. Threat actors realizing, hey, while I'm here, maybe doing some other operation, I can make money by deploying this and leverage another way to exploit this environment, this network. So we're seeing early areas where AI seems to be playing a supporting role, an augmenting role. What are some things that you're looking at going forward this year and into the next couple of years of where you think it'll be really important for people to follow how AI is playing into cyber threat activity. I'm not sure if this is more of a signpost or if it's more of just, I, I just find it fascinating. <laughs> but um, uh, I was thinking of a black box poisoning attacks where you manipulate essentially a model's training data and it affects the performance of a system overall and it leads the model to generate, you know, less accurate outputs than what than what it would normally do. So if you have, you know, a threat, a, fi- a financially motivated threat actor leveraging a black box poisoning attack against some sort of machine learning model used by the financial institutions, and you, they were able to somehow either use it for disruption or for financial gain, I think I'm not sure if that's, I think right now, a lot of the research is still being done to see the feasibility of this. And, you know, knock on wood, I don't think there's anyone on, I'm not, I have not uh, seen threat actors leverage that, but I think that's a space that I find uh, incredibly fascinating from what happens when you sort of hit, hit the model at the source and how that entire chain of slightly wrong outputs can lead to very large disruptions, especially if you're thinking about something like financial institutions and its ability for economic disruption, or if it's, you know, a a system that's doing image recognition that is for uh, 
law enforcement or for warfighters or for military intelligence using this AI technology to identify something if it leads it to not the most accurate output for what this image is, or this is a school bus, but it says it's some facility, you know, that can lead to a lot of very real world consequences that I think we should be aware of. So you're talking about this as a, from an attack surface standpoint, as we increasingly mm-hmm. see organizations leverage machine learning and artificial intelligence. And as they're using it, you know, use the example of like a bank is creating some model and is building financial products off of that. You're talking about poisoning the data sets that go into that that would ultimately have, uh, you know, a, a cascading impact on the resultant decisions or activity that's being made or generated off of that model. And so as we see adoption of that, um, I guess maybe you could say in analogous ways, we see like adoption of cloud technologies. There's going to be more of an interest right. by threat actors in targeting those and exploiting those. So you think that's something to watch for organizations that are making investments in that space that are increasingly using those technologies that they should be aware of, of how threat actors might try to exploit them? Right. And I think it's especially important because we've seen from how institutions that are already leveraging a lot of AI applications and models in their current workflow, there's this sort of inherent reliance on the output or this this trust that the model's output is infallible. And that's already this pre-established sort of agreement that we've come to realize with all these models. It's just, we've come to this assumption that the model will never be wrong. And it's led to some, it's already led to some very real world problems, whether it's medical resource allocation of like using this stuff for, to determine how much money someone should get for their medical benefits. That's already happened. Or whether it's leading law enforcement to arrest the wrong person because the model said this was the person, people are just sort of blindly following the output and taking it as law without actually having any human supervision at the end of going, wait, this might not be the most accurate reading. This might not be the most accurate output. There needs to be, I think, this sort of managed trust of the end output that we're not seeing. And when you have an over-reliance of that nature, and then you were to bring in something like black box poisoning attacks, it just spells trouble for the future. So a lot of concerning things as, as we see the adoption of, of that area of technology or areas to be aware of, as is the case with any sort of adoption of new technologies. Mm. Any areas, you know, we've talked about, you know, the artificial intelligence as an attack service. We've talked about how we're seeing threat actors use it. Any sort of final thoughts as we wrap up here? Some interesting things to follow or any sort of final thoughts about mm. AI uh, in general that we're seeing <laughs> uh, threat actors use? I mean, I, I just think there should be, at least in the the near to midterm, more human supervision of the end output. I think one of the, the main things that keeps me up at night is if there's no sort of Stanislav Petrov at the end of this, or there's no person there to stop us from making, you know, a very egregious and irreversible decision because we trusted an output um, that we shouldn't have trusted. I think there needs to be more understanding that just because this is super new and fancy and technical does not mean it is always correct. Does not, It does not mean that this output should be taken as law. And I think a lot of people are very quick to take whatever output is given and run with it without any sort of criticism. And I think we need to apply that same sense of critical thinking that we give to people and it should be applied to machines because at the end of the day, people are making these machines and they are just equally as fallible as humans. 
And hopefully that also applies to working as a cyber threat intel analyst. <laughs> AI and machine learning will not take or replace all of our jobs. There will still be a role for us, hopefully. On- I'll clean the machines. I don't care. I'll find a way. <laughs> well, Michelle, this has been very, I think, a, a useful overarching view of what we're seeing with AI today, where it might be going. Definitely something that for folks interested in this, there's there's a, a lot of research there. I am certainly going to be most interested in what we're seeing in the underground space, I think, going forward. Again, because it seems like so much stuff gets trialed there before other types of threat actors start to adopt it. It's definitely a Petri dish for for future threat activity. Yeah. It's it's a testing ground. Excellent. Well, we'll end it right there. Michelle, as always, thanks for your, your great thought and insights into this and have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks for having me. Take care.